you are listening to the Grace of Bel Air Sermon Podcast. Grace exists to help people discover a life of purpose in Jesus Christ through discipleship and serving one another. For additional information, you can visit us online at www.graceofbelair.com. And now, we invite you to enjoy this week's sermon. jump into the book of Romans chapter 7. Now we find ourselves in Romans chapter 7. Have you enjoyed Romans? Has it been a blessing to you? Amen. Amen. I I read the book of Romans several times and even now I'm still getting more and more out of this. This is truly an amazing passage or an amazing book of the Bible describing to us the, the, the concept of grace. Um, scholars have called it the gospel according to Paul, how grace has just really changed his life from the inside out, what it's done for him, because he got caught up in it simply because of who he was at one point in time, a, a persecutor of Christians. Uh, he would you know, do many terrible things to the church, and then one day, just in a moment, Jesus transformed his life, and he's beginning to discover more and more about what it's like to walk in grace. And so he, we find ourselves in Romans chapter 7, and we're going to be talking about competitive, like this competitive nature, because how many know we are competitive people? Anybody in here is competitive? You get competitive about anything and every game, everything, like board games, you know, any kind of game related, you get competitive. You get competitive about who gets the front seat, right? I mean, we just get competitive about a number of different things. And so today we're going to learn what is competing against us and, and how this operates in our life as a Person. So the title of the message is called The Rules Dominated Life Versus the Christian Life. And so this is going to help us uh, try to kind of figure out the game plan of sin. Romans chapter 7 is enlightening. It is a very important chapter in regards to the game plan of sin. It really unveils sin's strategy over people and how it operates inside of our world. And so But Paul is going to tell us how we are to live in the Christian life. What does Jesus do? Because again, he says this in Romans chapter 6, that we're no longer, as a believer, we're no longer under the law, we're under grace. And so how do we shift our mindsets? How do we be transformed by the renewing of our mind, Paul says, when it comes to things that, and patterns of behaviors, or or if we're struggling with sin, how do we overcome those things? Because Paul has said in Romans chapter 6, you know, that we're no longer a slave to sin. We're now living in freedom. We're, we're under grace now, and so there's freedom there. And so how do we overcome sin? Before we enter into, really, one of the most popular, powerful chapters in the Bible, when we come to Romans chapter 8, where he starts off by saying, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And what a, a legendary chapter Romans chapter 8 is. And so he is talking about uh, the Christian life, and how he's going to describe to us a very simple, basic principle Jesus taught his disciples. It's a called abiding in him. He says the Christian life is all about abiding in Jesus. In John 15, he will say this, Jesus talking, he would say, apart from me, you can do nothing. Which means if you are going to do something in the Christian life, 
you've got to abide in Jesus because it will produce fruit in you, fruit that will last. And so this morning, as we look at this, we're going to talk about these three ideas that we're going to work through, things that are competing against us. And like I said, we're all competitive in some way, shape or form. We all have that competitiveness based on what it is exactly may, may, may be different, but we still have a competitive nature in me. I'm a competitive person by nature. And so I like trying new things. I like trying to uh, compete at things and see how I do. Um, and a lot of times I pick things up rather quickly, but there's one thing I've never, ever, ever, ever able to conquer, and that is skiing. Anybody ski? Anybody? I'm talking water skiing. I can't do even snow skiing. I can't do. It is something about those skis. They're possessed, I tell you, every single time I put them on. I can't do either one. I tried water skiing as a young kid, teenager, couldn't do it. It's like, have you ever seen those people that need to let go of the rope when they're in the water because they've crashed, but they continue to hold on because they think they somehow can miraculously pick themselves back up? That was me, okay? Uh, I just never could get it. And so I've also snow skied. I once went to Colorado in college, never done it before in my life, but I figured I'd just pick it up just like I've picked up a lot of different things in my life. And so I had, you know, there's like the, the different levels of skiing, right? You have the black diamond, which is like, be careful on this hill or you will die, right? That's what I consider it to be. Um, and then there's like this intermediate level, then there's a the beginner level, then there's like the bunny hill, right? Which is something I never wanted to do, right? And so this, I'm skiing, I'm learning, and I'm doing terrible, okay? Like I can't figure this thing out. I couldn't figure out how to break, okay? Like I just couldn't do it. And so I was on a hill and I'm going down and man, I wipe out. Like I'm talking the sticks that I have go flying. The skis go flying off my feet. And uh, they have like the, the, uh, the snow skiing version of lifeguards there where they're like literally concerned for my soul. And I had two of these guys. My wife was there, I believe. And so she, they come up to me and they're like, sir, do you know what kind of hill you're on? And I said, well, I'm just, you know, I think it's beginner. And they're like, no, sir, you're on an intermediate hill. And I said, Oh, well, I will go to the beginner hill. So then I go to the beginner hill. And so I'm on that hill. Do the same exact thing, people. I crash. The ski sticks go flying. The, the, my, all these things just go flying off of me. And guess what? Guess who comes to talk to me again? Could it be anybody else but the same two guys? They're literally watching me. And I'm sure they're having the, the time of their life. And they come up to me again and very gently say to me, Sir, why don't you try the bunny hill? And how many know that would crush your competitive spirit just like that? And so I was taught a very valuable lesson on humility that day. And, uh, and so this morning we're going to be talking about competitiveness, things that are competing against us. Um, we're talking about the rules versus the Christian life. And so uh, we're going to be talking about three different ideas to work through in Romans chapter Seven. Romans chapter 6, Paul says we're no longer a slave to sin, we're a slave to righteousness, so there's something different that's happened inside of us. Romans chapter 7, like I said, is very important. Scholars agree it's one of the most complicated chapters in the book of Romans, but it's also a chapter scholars agree on that every single believer needs to have the right mindset on because it will be two different directions you go in if you're not careful. And the one direction can be very dangerous as opposed to the other direction, which can produce a healthy mindset. And so as we look at this, we're going to talk about it. The first point is going to be about the fruit that we bear. Fruit for death versus fruit for God. And it's going to be talked about in verses 
uh, 1 through 6. And, it, and, we'll, we'll, and I don't know if you've ever, you know, when it comes to decisions you make, you'll, what the Bible teaches us is this, is that you'll start to experience the fruit of those decisions. And you're, so this is very important. Paul is going to tell us, like, you have to evaluate those decisions. That really will help you in what kind of fruit it produces, right? And I've, uh, had, I've tasted food uh, before that was pretty good. And then I also looked at food that I thought was pretty good. And I tasted it, and guess what? It wasn't good at all. It, the fruit, it was literally tasted like death, okay? Um, I've, I've had chocolate milk before. I love chocolate milk, especially as a kid. I love that stuff. And I would drink it all the time. And one time I drank it, and I was chugging it as fast as I could because I loved it so much. And because I didn't know how much my parents were going to allow me to have, so I was chugging it all the more as fast as I could. And then I realized it was spoiled chocolate milk. And it tasted like hot sauce coming down my throat. Have you ever had hot sauce going down your throat? Just with nothing else? It's not good for you, okay? And um, that literally tasted like death. Um, and so today, Paul's going to tell us about what kind of fruit we're bearing here. Are we bearing fruit that's death, or are we bearing the kind of fruit that's going to be for God? And so he says this in verse 1. He says, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? For example... By law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law, is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. And so Paul gives us an illustration of a a law, but then he talks about us dying to the law and how sin starts to operate within the law. How does it work? As we'll read later, Paul will say, Sin seized the opportunity when the law was presented. It's like I've said several weeks ago where if there's a red button here in the room and I say, do not touch this red button, how many know you're going to be tempted to touch the red button because you want to see what happens? In fact, you're going to wait until everybody leaves just to push that button, right? Because why? Something is arising in you because you want to do it all the more. You just want to see what happens. Is it really going to do something terrible as much as it Maybe sounds like. And so um, when it comes to being under the law versus being under the grace of God, we're going to notice some different passions that come out of it. So I'm going to give you a side-by-side comparison. You ready? So you need to follow me. This is what, what happens when we make things all about the rules rather than using these things as the tools. So reading your Bible is not a rule, but it is a tool that will help you walk in your faith with Jesus Christ. Praying is not a rule, but it is a tool that will help you walk out your faith in Jesus Christ. It's how you look at it is going to be so important in your healthiness, spiritually speaking. And so what can happen is when we're thinking under the mindset of the law, what, it, what it's going to be doing to us is going to arouse sinful passions inside of us. Because again, Paul would say this in Romans 3, you're not a sinner because you've sinned. You are naturally a sinner, so you sin. There's a big difference. I don't just wake up one day and just sin and like, well, now I guess I'm a sinner now. No, 
the reason why you did that is because it's actually in your nature to do those things. It's just part of who you are, and you've got to learn how to deal with it. And so when it comes to the mindset of being under law, what happens is this, being under a list of rules, what it does, it will create an unhealthy competitiveness in you. And you'll actually start to compare yourself and try to make yourself better than everybody else. When being under the grace of God, what happens is this, is that you start to elevate others ahead of yourself. Jesus said, I didn't come to this earth to be served. I came to serve you. So he learns, he, he's taught us to elevate people. And he elevated the least of the least of people. He did the exact opposite. You see, we're, we're, and Paul will say this. He'll say, mourn with those who mourn, rejoice with those who rejoice. He says that in another scripture. So we know how to mourn with those who mourn, but does the church of Jesus Christ across America know how to rejoice with those who rejoice? Do we know how to celebrate people and their success that they have? Are we able to celebrate people who succeed in areas of our life that we are not succeeding? Are we willing to celebrate somebody's healing even though we haven't received our own? Are we willing to celebrate a job that somebody gets that we have not yet received? Are we willing to celebrate a child that has come to receive Jesus Christ that a parent has been praying over, even though our child of our own has not? Are we willing to rejoice with those who rejoice? Paul is telling us what will happen between the two. And he's talking about the fruit for death versus the fruit for God. There's another part where it says, well, you can have a judgmental attitude towards everybody else. That's what the law will produce, a judgment judgmental attitude. It's all about the rules. Remember what happened to Jesus and his disciples? They would, they would constantly, the religious leaders would constantly come to Jesus asking him why they aren't following this rule, that rule, all these different lists of rules. And they're starting to evaluate other people's life rather than looking in their own heart what was happening. Paul says we have to be careful. So we don't think the worst of others. We think the best of people. We think the best of them. So we remain humble because the cross is level ground. Now, there are going to be mindsets that we have when it comes to being under the law. It, it produces in you this heart of, of, well, I just want to do the bare minimum. I just, how far can I go? How, how close to the line can I get? How, is this sin really a big deal as that sin? It, it starts to produce in you this heart of doing the bare minimum. Rather than the opposite side is that, no, I, it's not how close I get to the line. It's how far I get away from it. It's how far I get away from sin. It's not how close I get to sin. It's how far I can get away from it. And so Paul will elaborate on these, that topic, especially when it comes to the mentality. The law demands perfection. Demands perfection. The law demands perfection. In other words, Paul uses this illustration. This is this could also be used in our own society. If you break one law, how many know you're a lawbreaker? That goes for the law too. The law states all these different things, and if you break it one time, you're a lawbreaker. Paul says this is what it does. It demands perfection. Christian life, being under grace, shows me I, can be, I can't be perfect. I'm not perfect. I'm under the grace of God. And so rather than looking at something and saying, I've got to be perfect in every area of my life, I'm praying, Lord, 
I know I can't be perfect in every area of my life, but help me to develop consistency in my life. Help me to be consistent in my words, in my actions, in my thoughts. Help me to develop that within me. Because you could be setting yourself up for failure, which when you do that, what does it produce? Well, if you're under the law, it will produce shame, guilt, condemnation every time. Because you can never, ever measure up. And you'll be constantly trying to gain God's approval of his love for you when he's already given it to you. But with the mentality of being under grace, you're going to realize, I trust God's word, not my feelings. I trust God's word, not my feelings. I rest in his, his word. I rest in who he is because that's the new way of living. It's not external. It's internal. It's the opposite. I'm flying through these three points today because I want to get to point number three because each and every one of these points could be a sermon in itself. Okay, as I looked at this, I'm like, this could be a sermon all in its own. So we're going to go to the next point, point number two, which is about now how do we view the law, right? There's a wrong view, but there's also the right view of how we view this law that Paul is talking about. And this is what he says in verse 7 through 12. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not known what sin was if it had not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had said, you should not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of, of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when commandment came, sin sprung to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded, the command, afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then... The law is holy, righteous, and, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. So Paul understands what he has just explained. People are going to have a view about the law that somehow the law is actually sinful when the law is not sinful. Because you know why? Guess who gave the law? Who gave the law? God gave the law. So is God sinful? No. So what is Paul saying? Is that sin realizes what the law states, and now it works to make you break it. And guess what naturally is inside of you? Sin. So sin is springing to life all of a sudden because it wants you to fall short of it every single time. And so this is what Paul is stating, is that this, the law itself is not, is not sinful. It is holy, righteous, and good, right? We've talked about this. Holy is, is pureness. It's pure because why? Because God is pure. He is holy. Righteous, it's righteous simply because righteousness is not about ignoring sin, but it's about dealing with sin. That's what God does. He deals with it. He doesn't ignore it. He holds it accountable because he has to remain true to his character. And so we learn in Romans chapter 3, what does he do when he has to deal with it? He unleashes his wrath on Jesus Christ because he understands I have to deal with the sin so rather than unleashing it on you, I'm going to unleash it on Jesus Christ. But you have to receive it. Otherwise, you're not under grace. You're under the law. And if you break it one time, you're a lawbreaker. And the sin remains. And the accountability will always be there on that. And so it's so important that Paul tells us this. And, and what he's referring to is that we've got to have the, the right view of the law. So when sin springs into this moment of opportunity when the law is presented, it will do this for you. This is the verses, the wrong view and the right view of 
the law. Here's what he says. Sin is basically going to deceive you of righteousness. It's going to deceive what it looks like. But the law is going to help you reveal the sin that is in you. The law will actually show you. Now, there are some things in the Old Testament law that no longer apply in the New Testament law. We understand that, right? Simply because Jesus became the sacrifice for us once for all. Paul has talked about that in the, in the book of Romans already, that the death of one man produced sin for all. The death of Jesus Christ has produced salvation for all, for all who receive. That is what Paul has already talked about. So we understand this, praise the Lord, that we don't have to do an animal sacrifice like they did in the Old Testament because of sin, right? I mean, if you struggle with the sight of blood, you should be jumping up and down for joy, right? Because you would probably pass out several times. Um, just, just because of what Jesus has done, that was done away with. So when it comes to sin, it's going to teach us, and this is what a lot of people view it today, is that it's going to show us that the Old Testament no longer applies. That's what sin will do. It says it no longer applies. But we know Psalm says this, Psalm 1 verse 2, meditate on the law day and night. That's what the psalmist tells us. It, it is good. It is holy. It is righteous. It is a law that we need to understand because it's showing us why God put things in place. Why did he put these things up for people? And what happened when people crossed the line? When they would cross a line? The law is holy. It's pure. It's good. Simply because it reveals the game plan of sin. This is what Romans chapter 7 is talking about. It's talking about the game plan of sin. Paul says, I know how sin works now because of what I've experienced through the grace of Jesus Christ. I know what it's doing. So now that I know what it's doing, when it tries to operate in me, I now know how to deal with it. I know what to do. So this is so pivotal. Sin will teach you that there's no consequence. There's nothing. There's not a big deal. You messed up. Big deal. No, nobody, nothing's, you're not going to be held accountable for those kinds of things. Sin, that's what sin teaches you. But the law shows us this. God does hold sin accountable. He knows everything. He knows every part of us. Sin will cause you to think God is against you. But we know this. The law is showing us that God is wanting to guide us down the right path. He is guiding us in this life. So when it comes to the view of the law, the sin will operate within it simply because it wants you to fall short. But we understand that, that we should not disregard the law. We should actually learn about what the law is telling us. Why is it stated there? Why is God providing parameters for people? What, and what happened when people messed up? What, did, what, did, what happened to those people? It's protection for our life. And so... We understand this, that sin looks attractive. Sin is fun. It's okay, you can admit it. Sin is fun. The Bible just says it's only fun for a season. Then it produces death in you. So, how does sin get you to sin? It makes it fun for you. It makes it exciting. That's why you do it. You know why you won't confront your anger problem? It's because you like the feeling it brings when you're able to unleash it on somebody. You know why you won't confront your gossip problem? It's because you like making yourself look better than somebody else. You know why you won't confront your mind and the things you think about, the images that you look at? It's because you like the way it feels in the moment. But the Bible says it will produce fruit of death. 
if you're not careful. John Oman, the famous theologian, I quote him often, says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. It is about confronting it. And as a believer, Paul says, here's what I've come to know, the game plan of sin and what it's doing. He has un- un- unraveled the mystery of all of it simply because of the grace of God. And so as we look at these next set of verses in 13 through 25, this is a very important part of Romans chapter 7 where Paul is going to say this to us in verse 13 through 25. Is the scholars agree this is the very critical part that we come to where this, is con- this can be going two different ways, but it's so pivotal that we get it right because it will address views that we may have had that need to change because what can happen if you have the wrong view in these next set of verses, you will actually become, become okay with living in the sin rather than overcoming the sin. Paul is going to teach us how you and I live this life as more than conquerors, as he'll say in Romans chapter 8. He says, now sin has no hold of you. And so what he says in this next set of verses, people have gone two different ways. People say, this is describing Paul's life as a Christian. You know, he's trying to do good, but he can't seem to do good all the time. He seems to fall short every time. So it's just like the normal Christian life. You're up and down, up and down. But then he says in verse 14 that he's a slave to sin. When he just said in Romans chapter 6, he's no longer a slave to sin, correct? He just said, I don't belong to sin. Romans 6 verse 14 says, sin will not be my master because I am not under the law. I'm under grace will not be my master. So it is not describing to us Paul's Christian life as he's living in these next set of verses. What Paul is actually describing is what happened before he came to know Christ. What happened pre-Christian in his life. Simply because he wants people to understand the game plan of sin, but he's also showing us how he's exhausted every single option possible for people to try to work their way around Jesus when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man's going to get to God the Father but through me. Paul is going to say at the very end in verse 24 and 25, he says, who's going to rescue me from this? Because why? He's exhausted every single option possible for people trying to work their way around Jesus and and what he has done for people. And he says, there's only one conclusion I have, and his name is Jesus. And let's read this in verses 13 through 25. It says, Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it is used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. So there it is, verse 14, which he just said in Romans 6, that he's no longer a slave to sin. He's a slave to righteousness. He's He's not letting sin be his master. So he can't be talking about the Christian life in this moment. He's talking about pre-Christian life. What is happening to him? He says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to, to do, I do not do. But what I hate to do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but sin living in me. There's his nature. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, That is, in my sinful nature, for I have desired to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. 
Now if I do what I do not want to do, there's no longer I who do it, but it's the sin living in me that does it. And so, as you can clearly see, he is going and describing to us the cycle of sin over and over and over. I'm going to fix this this time. I'm going to make it right this time. And how many know it doesn't work? It's the cycle. You're going through the cycle of sin where it's taking it into your own hands and trying to rescue yourself rather than going to Jesus as your rescuer. Jesus is teaching us how to overcome the sin. And we have to look to him. We have to abide in him. Because apart from him, the Bible says, you can't do anything. And so Paul is addressing the cycle that people walk through when it comes to sin. Because no matter what standard you set for yourself, Paul is very clear. No matter what standard you set for yourself, you can't even follow your own standards. Have you ever thought of that? I can't even follow my own set of own standards because if I break it once, I've broken my own moral code. Right? And then Paul is exhausting every option. He's saying, listen, if you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's only one way to earn salvation. And you can go through the cycle of sin all the time all, and keep going around and around. And what it's going to do is going to lead you to exhaustion. It's going to exhaust you. And Paul says, I've exhausted all options. I know the law. Paul is a Pharisee. Do you know what Pharisees had to do? They had to memorize the law. Have you ever tried to memorize the first five books of the Bible? I have not even come close to that. That is a lot of information. He was brilliant, and he understood. Even though I delight in the law of God, as he will say in these next set of, set of verses, it doesn't make me right with God at all. Just because I think it's a good thing, I think the Bible is good, and I like the Bible, I like what it has to say, does not make him a believer. This is what he'll say in verse 21. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, here he says, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work within me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who, here he goes, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be the God who delivers me through the Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind, I am a slave to God's law, but in my, my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. He says there's one way out. One way out, and that's through Jesus Christ. It starts with humility, where you humble yourself before God, and you confess with your mouth He is Lord, and believe in your heart that He is risen from the dead. Then the Bible says you will be saved. It is key that there, you use your mouth, and you also believe in your heart. It is both. People, a lot of times, will confess with their mouth, but they won't believe in their heart. How do you know if you're believing in your heart. Have you ever thought about that? We know how to understand confessing with our mouth because that's an outward expression, correct? It's an outward thing. But how do I know if I'm believing in my heart? This is where Paul is teaching us the cycle of sin and how to overcome. Because just because it's a struggle does not mean God wants you to live there. God wants to teach you how to overcome. You pass it by me, are you telling me I never struggle with sin again? No, I'm just saying the specific things you're walking through, God is trying to teach you something in it. And he's trying to show you how to overcome, how to keep it in check so that you will not be a slave to it because sin is no longer your master. God is going to bring you out on the other side. But you've got to believe. Jesus says if the Son has set you free, you will be free indeed. He's declared it over your life. Now it's time to believe and walk in that. 
And this is what Paul will, will teach. I'll give you some, some pointers as to what this can look like in a believer. First step is, obviously, if you're not a believer, to confess he is Lord, believe in your heart. We'll give you a chance to do that today. You've got to take that first step. Don't try to fix yourself before coming to Jesus. Jesus does the fixing. Too many people are trying to fix themselves before they come to know Christ. That's not how this thing works. And guess what? That's good news for you. Because Paul says you will exhaust yourself trying to do that. You will exhaust yourself. So here's how living in, abiding your life in Jesus looks like. Remember, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So how do I abide in Jesus? Here's a couple of things real quick. You have to ask yourself this question. If Jesus is the most important thing in my life, what does my daily calendar look like? What am I doing with my daily calendar? What does it look like? If it's the most important thing, I realize this. If he's the most important thing in my life, I'm not leaving Jesus at my house. I'm taking him with me everywhere I go because he is the most important thing in my life. And so what does my daily calendar look like? What am I doing to abide in him? Jesus teaches us the patterns over and over what you and I should do. Are there things we're spending too much time on that actually aren't benefiting in us in any way? You know, work could be stressful. So when you come home, you need to evaluate what are my, what am I doing at home that's adding to the stress level? Maybe turning on the news and watching it so much is not going to help your stress level because you are not detoxing from stress. You're actually just getting more just from a different area. I've learned that in my life. You know, there, there, I, I've deleted all news apps off my phone because I realized this, that I, spent, I was spending way too much time trying to gain information from the world that I realized this, it was stressing me out. Because guess what? Newsflash, world isn't getting better. It's not getting any better. So I've learned how do I not necessarily stay away from the world and don't know what's going on. How do I detox from some of this information and information overload where I am now strategically saying, okay, I spend less time on the news when I go through my internet browser than I do on an app. So therefore, I get rid of the app. How do I detox from maybe making sure sports is balanced in my life that I have eliminated several different sports apps off my phone because I don't need to know who's getting traded all the time? Right? And so guess what? I will go through a sports area or website on my internet browser, not on an app. Why? Because I don't need to know what's happening every second in the sports world. Because guess what? It doesn't change my life frustrates me more, especially when it's my team, right? I don't need more of it in my life. I need less of it. Not to say that it's bad or anything. No, no, no. I'm keeping it in check. There may be areas that you need to keep in check. Maybe there's a, a place you go with some friends and you let your guard down and unhealthy things come out of you. Maybe the places you're going to with those people needs to be a different location now. I'm not saying get rid of the relationship altogether, although that could be possible. What I am saying is maybe you don't go to that location with him anymore. If you're struggling with alcoholism, going to the bar is not going to help you. Going there is not going to help you. You need to keep that in check. You need to make sure because this is what this is what is so important in the believer is that you know how to overcome sin now. You know. And listen, this is what you do when you try to overcome sin in your life. Don't let people don't don't make people confront you. Confront yourself. Confront yourself. When you confront yourself, you are more focused on your 
life as a Christian rather than what everybody else is doing. You have less time worrying about all the things that everybody else is doing right and wrong because you're more focused on what is happening in your own life. Correct? It is so important as a believer, you learn to confront your own self. Because if you don't, you are going to leave it unchecked. The Bible says that you and I don't need to be complacent in our walk with Christ when it comes to sin, but we actually are overcoming it. We are not letting it unchecked. Maybe you need to get somebody in your life to reveal some struggles that you know nobody else knows about. And you need to bring somebody alongside of you because there's strength in numbers. I'm not saying reveal your struggles to the world, but I am saying is there areas of your life that are being left unchecked that need to come out of you. Paul says, sin will not be my master. It won't. And so I am willing to confront myself on the issues of my life because faith without works is dead. That's what James teaches me. So as God is building my faith, he's also teaching me to confront some things because he doesn't want it to reign in my life. You learn to do this all the time, and that's such a beautiful thing. This is why Paul says, man, it's great. Walking in Jesus Christ is freedom. It's amazing because he's learning to overcome sin, and he's doing it the way that Jesus laid out for us in his example. And that's why it's so important to have Christian community. I'm going to have the band come. So important to have Christian community. Because you need to ask yourself this question. Are there people praying over me? Are there people praying over me? And not just saying they're praying over you. Are you actually hearing their prayer? Is your, are they actually praying with you and you're hearing it? Because I'm telling you, it shifts something in you. Something goes into effect their prayer. So don't necessarily just have nobody praying over you and never hearing the prayer, but have somebody pray over your life. Prayer teams are up front. We have people that will pray for you. They'll pray over you. You need to hear it. You need to hear it. This is what we do, our small groups, connect groups, all these different things that we do here as ministry teams because it provides an opportunity for you to be prayed over. And you need to hear it. It shifts something in your heart. It's called spiritual community. Jesus laid it out for us. He spent time with God the Father because why? He realized in order for him to stay true to his purpose and mission, he had to abide in God the Father. But he also brings 12 disciples along for his journey. Did he need them? Probably not. More than likely, no. But he did it anyway. Why? Is it because he was trying to lay out the Christian life for us that you can't do it by yourself? You can't live life on your own. People don't need to know your business, but somebody does. There needs to be at least one person that knows everything so that you can confront it if you're not able to overcome it on your, on your own with God's help. But God's help might be telling you to get strength from somebody else who has. So this is the Christian community. What it does is it builds trust. Trust is hard to come by. I understand these days. And guess what? Yes, it may be true, but at the same time, Jesus still uses people every single time. Jesus used 12 disciples to carry on this mission. And there was more, I understand. But he had these 12 disciples with him all the time. They were no, and by no means perfect. But Jesus spoke into them, and they did incredible things. So, somebody needs to know. Because Jesus says, bring the darkness into light. Bring it into the light. If you're struggling with anger, confront the anger. 
if you're struggling with patience, confront the, the impatience that you just, you can't seem to get past it. If you're lashing out, confront that. If you're struggling with whatever the case may be, images on your phone, delete the app, get rid of it. Or have somebody have access to it because it'll keep you in check. It'll keep you disciplined. You won't be perfect, but you'll be consistent. And Paul says, there's nothing greater than walking in the freedom of Jesus Christ because I know the game plan of the enemy now and I know what he's trying to do. And I am no longer a slave to sin anymore. I am a slave to righteousness. And my faith is built up because not only am I trusting in Jesus, I'm going to walk with this life with people on the same mission together because greater is he that is within us than he that is in the world. And I will not go back to the mindset of being under the law anymore. This is what Paul addresses throughout his letters all the time. I'm no longer going back. I'm moving forward. Because I know I can't do it without him. But by God's help, he will help me be consistent in my journey with him. Amen? Amen. Let's stand this morning. Our Connect Group leaders, you guys can head over to your tables this morning. We're ending about five minutes early today. If you're on the prayer teams, you can come forward. Uh, we're going to be on the opposite side of the Connect Group table so that you're able to hear what the prayer request might be. If you're here today, you want to receive the Lord Jesus Christ, you can come forward with this team that will be up here on the prayer teams this morning. And they'll pray with you this, this day. If you need prayer for anything that you're walking through as a believer, I encourage you to come forward and, and receive that prayer. You need to hear what those, what those prayers are going to be said over you. It's so powerful what they, they are said. There's people that have been delivered from things up here because of what somebody has prayed over. Not because of what they said, but the power of God that went into operation because they trusted God's word over their own self and their own desires. It's truly amazing. If you would want to sign up for our ministry team or be a part of a small group of any kind, we encourage you to do that. It's one of the best ways for you to walk in spiritual community, to build to build trust with people, to know people, understand that, yes, people are not perfect, but neither are we. And when we're walking with this life together, knowing that we're on the same mission, we're doing this together. And when I fall short, I pick myself back up and I run to Jesus again because he's teaching me how to overcome. And I'm going to understand the way Jesus has taught me. He abided in God the Father. He was intentional about community. And he was intentional about reaching people for Jesus. You know what happens in spiritual community? Real spiritual community? Is the group comes together and starts to start thinking differently. It's amazing. I see this every time. They start thinking, how can we start reaching people? It's amazing how the mindset shifts. Even though that's not the natural intention to start, but as they start to be together, I see it every time with every group, no matter if it's a fun group, a study group, whatever the case may be. It's how can we reach people? Did you see the spiritual community truth come in to play there? What Jesus said would happen. He said, when you have spiritual community in your own life, you start thinking differently because everybody starts thinking differently because of the truth of the God's word coming into play because that's the same way Jesus lived. He taught us the way to live. So let me pray over you this morning. 
And then you can come forward if you would like to receive prayer or you can head over to a small group table. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and for your grace. Lord, be with us today. Lord, we pray for people this morning who need to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that they will do that this morning. Lord, for those who need overcoming uh, the, the situations they're walking through, the struggles, Lord, help them to know that they are not trapped in it, but Lord, that they can overcome through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you and we thank you this morning. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Everybody said amen. Amen, amen. Invite in Jesus this week. Come forward if you would like and, or head over to the small group table. We thank you so much. Have a wonderful week.